Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If we're at three degrees of warming in 2100, that means that all of sub-Saharan Africa will have no economic growth at all. But I just want to call into question the sort of fundamental premise of what you're asking, which is to say that economic growth is continuing almost in parallel to these climate impacts. We know enough about the scale and scope of these impacts to know that they will be in the very best case, complicating our trajectories of economic growth. And in some cases, in some places, probably a lot worse than that. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Today, I want to tell you about the argument in chapter two of my new book of the great experiment, why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure. Please order the book and read along. So when I was figuring out how to write this book, I thought, hey, I know what I'll do. I'll find the diverse democracy that works really well, and I'll go and spend time there, and I'll tell its story, and that'll tell us what we can emulate. It'll be fun, and we'll have the solution. But the more I looked at some of the countries that seemed candidates, the less convincing they were. I don't think that any country in the world has quite figured out how to have these deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies that actually treat their citizens as equals. So in chapter two of the book, I do something different instead. What I do is to look at the three main historical modes of failure at the way in which diverse societies in history have gone badly wrong to set up some of the things we should be on guard against, some of the ways we can learn from that historical experience. Now, the first of those historical modes of failure is anarchy. Thomas Hobbes, a wonderful political theorist, worried that life in the state of nature would be nasty, brutish, and short, that it would consist of a war of all against all. That, I think, is not entirely right. When you look at some of the places in the country where the state is very weak or has failed or is nearly non-existent, life actually looks a little bit different. What you get in Afghanistan and Somalia and other parts of the world is individuals who are caught in what Darren Atsimoglu and James Robinson call a cage of norms. Places where your parents your religious authorities, your neighbors have extremely strong influence over how you can live, but provide some kind of order. The problem, however, is that there is constant conflict between those groups, between different villages and clans and religious groupings. As a result, the state is really weak, is unable to provide a good educational system, is unable to provide roads, is unable to have high-quality health care and public health. And so those societies tend to be not quite as nasty, brutish, and short as Hobbes feared, but very poor and deprived nonetheless. One way of solving the problem of structured anarchy has historically been domination. 
it is for one group to win out over the other groups, set the rules, subjugate them, build a state. That has certain advantages. It often allows those countries to have much more economic growth, to be much more affluent, to have working streets and schools and hospitals. But it also has often come at an unacceptable price for those groups that are subjugated. Now, in its extreme form, what I call hard domination, this involves things like chattel slavery in the United States. It involves the most extreme forms of exploitation of the groups that are dominated. In other contexts, there have been forms of more soft domination in which the laws promise to treat everybody equally, but the actual social habits of the country ensure that they are marginalized and discriminated against. And in some interesting cases, you actually have domination by minority, which manages to abrogate the tools of the state in order to rule over the majority of people in the society. We have seen that, for example, under apartheid in South Africa. Now, a third mode of historical failure has been to say, we're not going to have anarchy, we're not going to have domination, we'll have fragmentation. We'll accept that our society is not much more than a group of groups. We will devolve a lot of the political power to the levels of competing communities and maintain a state which consists of bargains struck between the elites representing each of those groups. Lebanon is the main example here. Since its constitution was passed in 1943, it has said that the president is always going to be a Sunni, the prime minister is always going to be a Shia, the speaker of a parliament is always going to be a Maronite Christian. And the kinds of rules to which each member of those communities is subject depend on the membership in a group. The rules governing marriage and divorce and education and other important matters differ from group to group. The hope of Arndt Leiphardt and other political scientists has been that those forms of power sharing can avoid the worst form of conflict like civil war. But the reality has been different. A few years after Leipzig published his hopeful book on this, Lebanon fell into a deep and protected civil war. And even today, Lebanese society makes it very difficult for members of different groups to cooperate with each other, to marry each other for people to have a Lebanese rather than a Shia or a Sunni or a Maronite Christian identity. Now, all of these dangers persist in important ways today. There is a danger, as some social scientists have shown, that growing ethnic and religious diversity might undermine support for the welfare state and other forms of the provision of public goods. There is the continuing echo that past forms of domination have in how our society is structured. You can see that clearly with the history of slavery in the United States. And there's a problem that we will aim so low in how to build diverse societies that we end up with deeply fragmented societies in which different groups fail to sustain the kind of common identity which we need to have real solidarity and to avoid the worst outcomes, like conflict, like civil war. So with that historical knowledge under our belt, we can start to think about some of the ways 
in which we might be able to build diverse democracies which avoid those pitfalls. That is what Chapter 3, which you'll hear about next week, is going to do. Please read The Great Experiment, share it with your friends, and come back next week for a brief summary of the next chapter. My guest today is David Wallace-Wells. David is the author of one of the most read magazine articles about climate change and probably the best-selling book about climate change, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. The book focuses a lot on the challenge of climate change, but also in particular the worst-case scenarios from climate change. And one of the things that I found really interesting in following David's subtle work is that he has publicly acknowledged in the last year or two that that worst case scenario has actually become a lot less likely because of the falling price of renewable energy and some of the political action that countries around the world have started to take to contain climate change. So in this conversation, we have tried to explore why climate change is such an urgent challenge, what kind of political action it will take to at least contain the worst effects of the problem, whether we can breathe a little bit more easily about the worst case scenarios than we did in the last few years, what kind of role the media have in representing this problem in an accurate or inaccurate Away. We also had an interesting debate about whether it is useful to push for the narrative which raises the alarm the most or whether that might end up being politically counterproductive. It's left me with a much better understanding of the situation we face as well as the prospect of taking the political action and making the technological progress we need in order to get it under control. David Wallace-Wells, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Good to talk to you. So you have written the most best-selling or one of the most best-selling books about climate change. Very simply, why should we be really concerned about climate change in your opinion? Well, just today, where the climate seems relatively stable, if a little disturbed around the edges, the planet is already, depending on which measure you use 1.1 to 1.3 degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial average. And that doesn't sound like much, but it actually means that we are now warmer than we've ever been in the history of human civilization. And that means that everything that we remember as a species from the invention of agriculture up through the development of the modern nation state, modern culture, all the rest of it, grew up under climate conditions that are no longer with us. And we are already today in a new climatic regime, which is changing what we can expect from agricultural yields, from wildfire, from droughts, from storms, you know, the whole litany that everybody at this point is relatively familiar with. And we're going to get considerably warmer from here. Probably, I think a best case scenario is just a hair under two degrees, although there's still a lot of political leaders around the world who think we have a chance of keeping it to 1.5. And even the difference between those two somewhat small seeming numbers, 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, is really quite large when it comes to the mathematics of human suffering. So in that half degree margin, we're talking about expectations that 150 million additional people would die from the effects of air pollution, from the burning of the fossil fuels needed to get us to 2 degrees. We're talking about heat waves across South Asia and the Middle East. 
that would be so hot during summer that they would be regularly lethal. You know, you couldn't go outside or certainly couldn't work outside without, depending on who you are, depending on your biology, some risk of heat stroke and possibly heat death. As a result, most people studying this believe we'd be talking about large-scale climate migration, perhaps the UN says into the hundreds of millions of people. And for all of these reasons, you know, the world that we are heading for and will almost inevitably arrive in in our lifetime is really discombobulated and disordered from the one that you and I grew up in. And it scrambles our expectations for the future, perhaps even more. Now, that's not to say that, you know, humans are going to go extinct or the planet is going to die or anything of that apocalyptic extreme. But everything that we know about modern life is the result or grew up under climate conditions which we can't count on any longer. And I think we will be learning, we are learning already just how much of our lives, even in well-developed, prosperous, quote-unquote, modern parts of the world are dependent on those climate conditions and as a result are going to be dramatically disrupted with further warming. That's a really helpful overview. I think there's sort of two distinctions that people struggle to make in this debate. One is between the most likely scenario on the one side and the sort of tailored risk of the most catastrophic scenarios on the other side. And obviously there's, there's reason to worry about both, but it's important to keep them apart conceptually in our mind. And the other, I think, is between the bad effects that climate change is going to have in itself, on the one hand, and whether or not these bad effects are going to make life in the future worse, all things considered, on the other hand, which is not necessarily the same because if we continue to make economic progress and so on, it may be that those terrible impacts limit the progress, but don't actually make life worse on the whole, which again, is something to really worry about, but it's important to keep apart conceptually. So perhaps let's go into these two things first. What do you think is the most likely scenario at this point in terms of climate? And I know that that depends on political choices. It's really hard to project. But if you have made your best point estimate of where we're going to be in 50 or 100 years, what do you think the climate will look like and what do you think life on Earth is going to look like? And we'll get to the tail end risks after that. Well, I think the first thing to say is that all of these projections are governed by several layers of uncertainty. There is uncertainty, as you point out, about human response and human action. There's also uncertainty about how the climate itself will respond, what sorts of feedback loops may be initiated, exactly how quickly things like Arctic ice and Antarctic ice will disappear. So we're making projections in a cloud of deep uncertainty. And for the most part, I think most humans alive on the planet today use that as an excuse to not worry too much about it. But I think the alternate approach that we should be worrying more about it as a result is probably more responsible, at least. Though, of course, as a human, I share the other impulse too. If I had to guess, I would say that we're looking at a level of warming this century, somewhere between two and two and a half degrees Celsius, maybe a little north of that. And that's basically because we are making remarkably fast progress driving down the price of renewable energy, which makes it now a good bargain just about everywhere in the world that's investing in its own energy future. But we're not nearly doing enough or moving fast enough to draw down our use of fossil fuels. So at the moment, we're doing much more supplementing of our existing energy base with renewables rather than replacing, which is what we really need to do. So just let me double click on this point, because I think it's important to draw out. So a lot of the time, the battle against climate change is framed as having to revolve primarily around sacrifices, including economic sacrifices. And there is a part of that, which is true. But what you're talking about in terms of affording price of renewable energies is that actually, in many places, it's coming to be just economically rational 
to deploy technologies that are better for the planet, not because you're interested in saving the planet, but just because they're cheaper. Yeah, this is really the major shift in the culture of climate change and climate action over the last five or 10 years, which is to say, you know, when Al Gore was first warning us about climate change or when, you know, all these series of the Kyoto Protocol, all of those were undertaken at moments when we really thought that this was going to be a burdensome transition, that we would have to do it for the sake of each other and the planet and our lives in the future, but it was going to be expensive in the short and medium term. And in part because renewable energy costs have fallen so dramatically, and in part because we're getting a clearer sense of especially the health effects of burning fossil fuels, which are really catastrophically large, that calculus has really changed. And just about every political leader everywhere in the world acknowledges that the IEA, the sort of industry standard research group, says that I think the figure is that 90% of the world is now living in places where new renewable energy is cheaper than new fossil fuel energy. And in many parts of the world, we're already seeing it be the case where new renewable capacity is cheaper and continuing to run existing fossil fuel capacity. And that is just a very, very different policy landscape than the one that we were operating in even during the Paris Accord negotiations in 2015. It means that every individual nation can seize this bargain and make better investments rather than worse investments. And that's liberating not just because it pulls us forward towards more action, but because it liberates individual nations to move on their own. A decade or two decades ago, it really was the case that basically like nobody was going to move unless we all moved because we understood that this would be an expensive transition. If it's now the case that we're all going to be economically better off the faster we move, then every individual nation, so long as they get the financial support that they need to jumpstart that transition, can move a little bit more aggressively. And I think we're already starting to see that, not in terms of concrete investments yet, but in terms of the pledges that are being made by nations all around the world, making much more ambitious net zero promises than was considered politically palatable or workable just a half decade ago in the year or so leading to the Glasgow summit, where we now have something like 80% of the world's economy and 80% of carbon emissions are now committed to net zero by 2050, 2060, almost all 2050 with the exception of China. So this is an amazing example of where technological development, fueled in part by a market economy, fueled in part by government investments, has really transformed the basic conditions we're facing for the better. One thing I've always wondered about this, though, is how far does that get us? Which is to say that is renewable energy going to get so much cheaper so fast that we will just let a lot of fossil fuel that we have available in the earth lie around? Does it actually get us so far that nations that have a lot of coal reserves or a lot of natural gas reserves are going to say, we just keep those in the ground because it's not actually economically sensible to use them up? Or do you think that we will still need some economic self-sacrifice by nations, some government regulation, etc., to make sure that that happens? I think it's sort of hard to answer that question in a universal way. I think every country with their own resources, their own energy needs is approaching that dilemma differently. At a theoretical level, I think that it's certainly possible to imagine renewable prices falling so far that it simply won't make sense to continue to exploit fossil resources. We're not quite at that point in most of the world. It's now the case, as I mentioned earlier, that it may be cheaper to build new renewable capacity than to build new fossil capacity. But if you've got that stuff and you've got those pipelines, you've got those oil wells operating, like you may as well keep them running. Now, how much farther the price falls and how sort of neatly and linearly we can predict that will continue 
is a really important factor in the energy transition of the next decade or so. And there are good reasons to think that it will continue to fall. In fact, there's a major paper out of Oxford last fall that said that if there was no interference in the market by governments on behalf of fossil fuel entities going forward, that the falling price of renewables alone would be sufficient to bring the world underneath two degrees of warming. I'm not sure I buy that analysis entirely, but as we were saying earlier, it's an illuminating conceptual shift from the place we were in the past. Now, there are petrostates, there are countries whose resources are tied up in fossil fuels, and there are probably many more countries whose tax base is tied up in the local fossil fuel industry. These are really thorny geopolitical and national political questions. I can't say that the answer is going to be the same for everybody, but I think that we are approaching a point globally where a rational assessment of the, say, 10 to 30-year horizon would be for almost everyone to choose to pour whatever money they're pouring into energy extraction into renewable resources of one kind or another, rather than to invest further in developing new infrastructure. So the falling price of renewables is one really important factor in making a somewhat cooler planet plausible than seemed likely five or 10 years ago. But we also have had a real rise in political activism around climate change, which has, along with the market forces, really changed the calculus of our political leaders and also changed the thinking of a lot of major figures in the corporate world who are focused on a transition, not just for economic reasons, but to serve the sort of social demands of their customers, especially in the global north, where this is becoming a more and more prominent concern. So you see a lot of it is at the moment empty, but you see a lot of pledges and promises in the corporate world. And while personally, I'd prefer not to have to count that as progress, just that empty rhetoric, it is a really marked difference from where we were a few years ago and does suggest another driver in addition to the pure price driver. In terms of what we're likely to look at in a world of, you know, say, two 0.25 or two and a half degrees of warming. A lot of the things I mentioned a minute ago are relevant. So we're talking about literally 100 or 150, maybe even more deaths from air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels. Today, we're killing about 10 million people a year from the burning of fossil fuels, which is an absolutely catastrophic and almost unimaginable number, although it's also a sign that we can normalize and ignore quite a lot of suffering um, in the present day, which may tell us a little bit about how we're likely to respond to climate damages in the future. So I took us for a little bit of a loop. You were talking about the most likely scenario at this point being something like two to two and a half degrees of warming by the end of the century. I thought it was important to understand why you thought that this comparatively more optimistic scenario is more likely, which has to do with this falling price of renewable energy. What would that mean for what the world would look like? So if in 2100, we are at 2.25 degrees of warming to take the middle of your estimate. Do we know precisely what that would mean in terms of human life and in terms of the environment? What is the kind of range of expectations we should have for what that means for life on the planet? We're talking about many cities across South Asia and the Middle East becoming so hot that the traditional, and by traditional, I don't mean 19th century way of life. I mean, the way that people are living today in those cities, doing a lot of outdoor labor, agricultural labor, doing a lot of commerce in the street, in unair conditioned buildings, all of that is going to become much, much harder. Now, that's not to say that the entire, whatever it is, 12 million people population of Calcutta is going to die on a really hot day, but it does mean that you're going to start to see really high numbers of heat-related illness and death all across the equatorial band of the planet, much more dramatic impacts there than we've ever seen before. And we're likely to see some of those impacts a little more irregularly in the northern latitudes, as we saw with the Pacific heat dome in British Columbia and in Washington state last summer. There's likely to be, in part as a result, a large migration refugee story this century. 
the UN says something like 200 million climate refugees is likely by 2050. They actually have a high-end estimate of 1 billion, which seems implausible to me, but nevertheless, I'll just throw it out there as a marker of what maybe a worst-case scenario could be. 1 billion is as many people as live in North and South America combined today. One thing that I have trouble is thinking through in these scenarios. I think those scenarios seem plausible to me, but the projection is difficult because so many different factors go into it. I've been to Calcutta. If the heat becomes more extreme at Calcutta's current level of urban development and current level of socioeconomic development, that would be catastrophic in the ways you outline. One question, of course, is what will Calcutta look like in the year 2100, which is the year we're talking about in terms of these projections. And it's certainly imaginable that at the current growth trajectory of India, the country will just be vastly, vastly wealthier and Calcutta will be vastly, vastly wealthier by 2100. Now, that doesn't trivialize, you know, having days in the year where you barely can go outside because it's so hot. It doesn't mean that that's not something to worry about. It doesn't trivialize the ways in which some people may be impacted even then. But it does make it really hard to think in terms of you know, how disruptive it'll be to life as it will look like in Calcutta at that point in any case, to project how many deaths and injuries will result from something like an extreme heat wave. How do you think about that on sort of most likely scenario of what the world will look like in 2100? Well, I would start by saying, in general, I do think that many of these projections, as you say, do treat human adaptation, resilience, and growth as irrelevant. And that's a problem. These climate impacts are only half of the story and how we respond and how we grow and you know how we develop along the way are the other half. And they intersect in very important ways when we're talking about human flourishing. I'm a little less sanguine, I guess, or a little less confident that we can project recent economic growth, especially in a place like India forward all the way to 2100, if we're talking about really dramatic climate impacts. And that gets us to a really big theme here, which is that while we are talking about a universal threat, it is global and it will affect every part of the planet, those effects are not equal. They are concentrated in the equatorial bands of the planet, which are also, unfortunately, many of the poorest parts of the world. And there's a lot of good economic work suggesting that certainly with unmitigated warming will take us north of the point that we're talking about to three, four degrees of warming. But if we follow that trajectory, we can plausibly say that by the year 2100, huge parts of the world will have lost at least half and maybe more than half of their potential for economic growth. That's because their agricultural productivity has fallen dramatically. It's because of the effect of heat and temperature on human cognition and performance and many other factors on top of which we have to think about natural disasters happening somewhat more frequently. Now, I don't want to take any single study or any single bit of research as gospel and say we can take that to the bank and know that if we're at three degrees of warming in 2100, that means that all of sub-Saharan Africa will have no economic growth at all. But I just want to call into question this sort of fundamental premise of what you're asking, which is to say that economic growth is continuing almost in parallel to these climate impacts. We know enough about the scale and scope of these impacts to know that they will be, in the very best case, complicating our trajectories of economic growth. And in some cases, in some places, probably a lot worse than that. And that you know, explains, I think, to some degree, um, some of the geopolitics around climate where wealthy countries of the world who are concentrated literally in the North, we call them the global North, but literally like they're concentrated in the North, are much more comfortable with higher degrees of warming than countries in the global South who are vulnerable, not just because of their level of economic development, but because of their geography and where they are. And you've seen, you know, over the course of the last few years, sort of a growing chorus of many of these climate diplomats and leaders from 
Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, calling for much, much higher levels of investment and support from the global north for their efforts to mitigate and adapt and being really clear that they don't believe that a world of two degrees or more warming is really, I mean, they would say livable, acceptable, and that it's immoral for anyone anywhere in the world to sort of conscience that level of warming. I think that there is reasonable scientific basis for that perspective. Now, that's not to say that I think at 2.2 degrees, there'll be no people living in sub-Saharan Africa. Of course, there will be. But the amount of suffering that they will be experiencing is much, much higher than we would like to believe is acceptable to people like us living in the global north. And I think we should try to do what we can to limit that amount of suffering by limiting the amount of warming that they endure and trying to support them in their efforts of adapting to that new climate. There's a double bind here, right? Because I absolutely buy the way in which climate change may make it harder for these countries to develop economically. At the same time, there are also some things that we may ask them to do about climate change that make it harder for them to develop economically. And one of the major reasons why life is very hard in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, or even in parts of India today, is, for example, poverty of access to electricity and all of the conveniences that come with it, all of the beneficial health effects that come with that. So how do you think we should organize the fight against climate change in such a way that we maximize the chances of countries in the global south developing economically as rapidly as they can, both because that will actually make them more resilient against the worst effects of climate change and because it's very important in itself, while at the same time, obviously, making sure that we get onto the best possible pathway in terms of limiting climate change. Well, I think it gets back to what we were talking about at the start, about the changing economic calculus facing anyone making investments in our energy future anywhere in the world. And that's to say, five years ago, 10 years ago, it was really hard to imagine what the Global South would do to sort of do their part in limiting global warming, because we knew that those figures are somewhere between 800 million and a billion people who lack regular access to electricity in the world. We can't ask them to continue to have no electricity for the next century. That's not morally acceptable. But giving them electricity or helping them attain access to electricity today looks like a very different bargain than it looked like five or 10 years ago in the sense that it may already be the better choice, the cheaper choice, you know, the sounder investment to be doing almost all of that, if not all of it, through renewables and to some degree nuclear. And we'll see how that plays out, especially China's making a big nuclear push, which may change the landscape of nuclear power globally over the next couple of decades, but it sort of remains to be seen. And so it used to be the case that basically we were going to be asking several billion of the world's poorest people to shoulder an economic burden in order to prevent catastrophic warming. And now we're in a situation where, globally speaking, it's really about accelerating a transition that is economically inevitable based on the forces that we understand today. And there's a real need there for Western support, support from the global north, from financial institutions, in terms of the sort of initial capital needs of building out wind power, building out salt, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a real need there. And we should take seriously the fact that the global north is really failing on that front to this point. They haven't yet even met the promises they made under the Paris Agreement. And it's now the case that Leaders from the global south are calling for seven, eight, 12 times as much as they asked for in 2015. But it would not be an ongoing burden that this fight against climate change would be imposing on the world's poor. In fact, the opposite, especially when you look at the health effects there. I think it's really, really clear. I just wrote a, a long piece in the LRB about air pollution in particular. And when you look at the state of play there in India, it is really quite 
gruesome. I mean, the average resident of Delhi has had their life expectancy shortened by nine years because of air pollution. All across the Indo-Gangetic plain there, you're talking about an average of six or more years of life expectancy lost on average. Just to be clear for listeners, so this is because of fine particle pollution, because of just the immediate threat to airways and so on from making your dinner on, you know, a coal stove and, and things like that. Or what's the reason here? There are a lot of different things that cause particulate pollution. So there's the burning of fossil. Globally, the burning of fossil fuels is the biggest one, but in different parts of the world, the drivers are a little different. So in India, there's also a fair amount of agricultural burning, which is farmers burning their fields. There's cooking indoors with unhealthy stoves that you're talking about. You know, I mentioned that life expectancy numbers and globally, you know, it's estimated that we're losing about 10 million people a year, which is, you know, just in my lifetime, it's 400 million lives, just to put that a little bit in perspective. But it's also not the case that these effects are just lethal. They also affect all kinds of human well-being. It has effect on coronary disease, pulmonary disease. It has effect on cognitive performance. There's a relationship with Alzheimer's and dementia on test scores and on economic performance, on judgment umpires who are refereeing games where there's pollution in the air making worse. I mean, it's really like all across the board, no matter what metric you use, air pollution damages your functioning. And India is the sort of worst case situation in the world today, but they're really, really suffering enormous amount. And, you know, we talked earlier about the sort of economic consequences here. You know, there's some estimates that India is losing something like um, 6% of GDP every single year because of their air pollution effects. As I said earlier, I don't want to put too much stock in any single study, but the literature about the effects of air pollution on human suffering is so dramatic and so so large now. I think we have to really look a little more squarely at it when we're thinking about the effects of inaction on climate in particular. You're right not to put emphasis on one particular study, for I remember one particularly striking one, and you probably know it better than I do. It's been a number of years since I've read it, but I think it's about Salt Lake City or someplace in Utah that used to have some kind of coal plant or something similar. And then one year it shut down, I think, on a temporary basis because of some problems with the factory or they were rebuilding it or something along those lines. And you just have a number of admissions for asthma to the local hospital from children. And it just plummets into one year that the factory isn't up and running. You know, that to me was a very striking sort of natural experiment that really showed the magnitude of some of these effects. So what I hear on that, though, is actually a relatively optimistic story, which is to say that the incentives all seem to point in the same direction. The incentives for the government of India in making sure its citizens are healthier, making sure its citizens are more economically productive, and making sure that we deal with climate change seem to go in the same direction. There's another optimistic part of it, too, just to briefly interrupt, which is to say, probably globally, we are past the peak of air pollution, which means that as horrible and catastrophic as those numbers are, they are likely to be declining over the next few decades. And we may be today living with much more death and suffering from air pollution than we will ever again in our lifetimes globally. On top of which, those numbers may well be, I think the argument's pretty strong, may well be higher than the total number of deaths or however you want to calculate human suffering from climate change over the rest of the century. So there's a way in which the air pollution story is reassuring when we think about climate change because things are already getting better and they may never get as bad from climate change as they have already been in the past from air pollution when we, generally speaking, didn't pay all that much attention to it. That's interesting. So basically things are actually really terrible right now in ways that are really hard to track because deaths from air pollution happen in these strange chronic ways and they're hard to track and so on and so forth. And they're getting a little bit better. And the effects of climate change are going to be really bad. They're actually not going to be potentially not as bad. That's a really interesting story. Now, let's go for a moment to the most pessimistic side of the argument, which is to say that so far, 
we've been talking about your point estimate, about what you think is sort of the most likely set of outcomes. What motivates me when I think about climate change is the most likely scenario, but to a greater extent, actually the tail end, which is to say that it's once you start thinking about the possible but unlikely outcomes that you get into the real horror scenarios. So take us through what those horror scenarios would look like and how likely you now estimate them to be. This high-end emission scenario that's been built into the scientific literature by the UN's IPCC body is called RCP 8.5. And for a long time, this was often referred to as a business as usual, like we don't do anything trajectory. I think that was always a bit misleading, but it's become even more misleading in the recent past as we've had this renewable price revolution. So I think it's now fair to call it a kind of a worst case scenario that is something like, I don't know, it would require a lot of inaction on the retirement of fossil fuels and probably some significant additional carbon coming from feedback loops and some higher degree of what's called climate sensitivity, which is to say, given a certain amount of carbon in the atmosphere, how much warming comes from it to get to a warming scenario that's suggested by this RCP 8.5 emission scenario. I've written about how this is now looking much less likely. A lot of other people have written about it too. I would just say in general, you know, that's an emissions path, but we can also get to that level of warming from other mixes of effects. But we could get to that same level of warming if we had worse feedbacks than we expected and the global climate sensitivity was considerably higher. And that's not a discountable probability. Now, I wouldn't put it at like our median 50% probability at all, but if it's something like a 10% chance, that's really meaningful enough to worry about, especially given how catastrophic the impacts would be. And there are estimates that suggest that we're talking about a tripling of global warfare because of the effect of temperature on conflict. And there's studies about how that affects conflict at the individual level too, not just at the social level. We're talking about agricultural yields falling by 50% or more, again, you know, barring adaptation and innovation on the sort of GMO crop side or agricultural strategy side. We'd be talking about places that could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. So hurricanes, wildfire, drought, you know, you go down the list and it gets pretty bleak, which could produce all told something like, you know, some studies have suggested as much as $600 trillion in global climate damages by the end of the century, which is considerably more wealth than exists in the world today. Now, presumably we'd be richer then, so it wouldn't be more than exists in the world then, but still it's an unbelievably large impact. And at that level of warming, I don't think that we're talking about global civilizational collapse, even at four degrees, but it starts to seem like those risks are real and worth worrying about, even if they're not likely. And, you know, certainly at a local level, we're likely to see much more conflict, especially across the parts of the world that we were talking about earlier, the global South that have much less capacity for and resources for building resilience and adaptation. And as a result, much more prone to fraying of the public order and maybe worse. And it's hard to put numbers on this. One of the things I've been thinking more and more about over the last few years is just how much our sense of the future is clouded by uncertainty and how difficult a time we have thinking through those problems. But you know, if you do want to put an arbitrary number on it, say something like 5 or 10% that we're going to get 4 degrees of warming, that really is a dramatically different world than the one that we have always known. And at the very least, living in it will require a pretty thorough remodeling of expectations and response such that we are preoccupied in a quite profound central way, in an ongoing way, about how to engineer livable futures in that landscape. That's not to say it can't be done. Even I think that at four degrees, there will be large parts of the world that are operating and kind of familiar seeming and maybe even wealthier. But nevertheless, the basic board game that we're operating in is, is going to be very different about future. And we're talking about the lives of billions of people who will be really dramatically affected. 
So the picture I get from this conversation, which I found super clarifying and helpful, is that there's parts of the world that are already very affluent, there's parts of the world that are very poor today and suffer in important ways, including a lack of access to electricity because of their poverty. We actually have a real health crisis at the moment because of particular pollution and so on. And then there's this danger of climate change, which on a most likely scenario is a very significant danger, on a less likely scenario is a catastrophic danger. What sort of policies do you think we should adopt to maximize human well-being over the next decades? How do we deal with this complex of different challenges we're facing in a way that is as equal as possible to all of them? Well, I think at a macro prescriptive level, all of the incentives line up, at least by my judgment. So renewable energy is already cheaper than dirty energy in most parts of the world. In short order, it'll be a better bet everywhere. The public health benefits of making that transition are enormous, and they will allow us to avert the most catastrophic impacts of climate change if we undertake that transition very aggressively. And even if we undertake it lackadaisically, probably the pace of technological change will allow us to avoid some of those worst case scenarios. That means that the prescription is pretty clear to me. It's just like, we got to make this transition fast. And one of the reasons we want to make it fast is because it'll limit the amount of time in which the bumpiness of the transition is problematic. And, you know, at the moment, we don't have renewable capacity sufficient that if we turn off all our nuclear reactors or turn off all of our coal power plants, that it's not just people in sub-Saharan Africa who aren't going to have energy. It's people like you and me aren't going to have energy either. And that's not acceptable. So we need some time to build out our capacity while we draw down our fossil fuel use. But if we do that over the course of 30 or 40 years, as opposed to 10 or 15 years, there's just going to be considerably more geopolitical and energy complications that arise from it. So I think for all of these reasons, it's like the goal is moving fast and moving most aggressively. Now, in terms of policy prescriptions, how we do that, in general, I think it's hard to talk in universal terms. Every country has different needs and every country has different demands and political dynamics. But even looking at the very explicit subsidies that we are giving out today to the fossil fuel business in much of the world, the IMF says they use a more expansive definition of subsidy, which includes also unpaid for damages, which is probably a little misleading. But they say that we're paying something like five or six trillion dollars a year in subsidies to the fossil fuel business. A more conservative estimate of direct subsidies is still in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And there's really no justification for that at all, so far as I see. I think that that's quite poisonous literally and poisonous politically too. I think that what we want to be doing is not waiting for next generation technologies, but building out as aggressively as we possibly can the tools that we have today while putting some amount of money in that R&D so that 30, 40 years from now, as we're solving the last bits of the problem, we have new tools available. But I think we can't really wait for that development to take place because Every year that we delay, we put more carbon into the atmosphere. And I think one really deeply underappreciated feature of climate change is that carbon is cumulative. It hangs in the atmosphere at least for centuries and possibly millennia, which means that every ounce of carbon that's ever been emitted in the history of industrialization is still up there or an equivalent bit of carbon transfer is complicated to explain. But basically, if you put an ounce of carbon, there will be an ounce of carbon that you're responsible up there for many centuries. So if you burned a piece of coal in Manchester in the 19th century, that is still having global warming effects that are equal to a piece of coal that's being burned today in China. And 
we don't get to draw down that carbon naturally on any time scale it makes sense to plan for. Over the course of millions of years, we will reduce that carbon. We may be able to accelerate that with you know some technological tools, which I'm relatively bullish on. But in general, anything that we do today is just adding to the total of warming. And so delay is really terrible. <laughs> We are currently at essentially peak emissions. We're emitting more now than we've ever emitted in all of human history, which means that we are just making the problem worse and worse every year. We talk a lot about the next few decades in a much more optimistic way. I think there are good reasons for that. But we haven't begun yet to bend the curve downward. And we don't just need to reduce our emissions. We need to get them all the way to zero to stabilize the planet's climate at any temperature level. So we have a huge, huge task ahead of us. And every year that we delay, we are making the mountain taller, which means the descent will have to be sharper. There's a really eye-opening graphic that I think about a lot. There's one version that's like global emissions flagged with each of the climate conferences. And basically, there's been no effect of any of the climate conferences on emissions, which have continued to go up and up. And as I sort of famously wrote about in my book, you know, half of all global emissions have come in the last 25 years. So we've done more damage since this became an international top shelf concern than in all the centuries before. That's kind of damning. But maybe even more alarming is a graph that shows if we implement all of the policies that were pledged at Paris and after, but no more, we would entirely exhaust our carbon budget for 1.5 degrees Celsius sometime in the middle of the next decade. So we have a very short course here. And every single year that we delay is just making the path to a quote-unquote stable climate much, 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 much harder to achieve. It's not just about moving in the right direction. At this point, we have to move much, much, much faster. So what would that mean concretely? Because you talked about phasing out subsidies or abolishing quickly <laughs> or immediately subsidies for fossil fuel companies. That seems obviously right. But you also talked about, you know, we want to move into these cleaner energy technologies over the next 10 or 15 years rather than the next 20 or 30 years. What would that look like? Are you making that argument to the CEOs of Shell? Is that the audience? Are you making that argument to policymakers? If so, what can they do to make the transition? Are you making that argument to individual listeners of this podcast? Should they change who is delivering electricity to them in the household? What would it mean for us collectively to make this transition in the next 10 years rather than the next 35 years? It's a question that will be resolved at the national political level, primarily. The fossil fuel companies, some of them are moving a little bit more quickly than others, but none of them are really moving at the speed that climate science would require of them. And I think ultimately, if you fast forward to the end game where we're at a zero carbon situation, we're not burning any fossil fuels at all. And unless those companies are going to transform entirely into clean energy companies, which I don't think they will, we have to really think about basically retiring them, drawing them down in one way or another. Now, how that is achieved is a matter for different national governments to strategize around. But, you know, in general, I think that they need to play a role in a lot of the infrastructural build-out that is beyond the capacity of individual companies. So we're talking about a much cleaner grid, for instance, you know, much more renewable charging stations on highways to make this rapid transition possible. But The obstacles are many fewer than seemed to be the case just a few years ago. And I mentioned earlier this paper out of Oxford that came out in the fall. It's a team of people modeled the learning curves of renewable energy of, I think, wind, solar, hydro, and really found that the only thing standing in the way here is a real takeover of the energy system by renewables is political interference. You know, there doesn't need to be additional R&D. There doesn't need to be even any more incentive structure to make people 
prefer that path when they're buying their own energy or to make it a sounder investment for people investing in that energy. It's really just about getting out of the way. Now, I think that may be a little optimistic. Personally, I would like to see if we're subsidizing the fossil fuel business by hundreds of billions of dollars a year. I'd rather see that turned into the renewable side of things rather than just eliminated. But I don't think that the policy prescription at a macro level is all that tricky. It's like, We have political economies all around the world that have been essentially captured by fossil fuel businesses for a century. And in part, that was productive and useful. It made us a lot richer and a lot happier, et cetera, et cetera. But we need to break up that marriage and we need to really use the forces of government spending to accelerate the transition that is unfolding already as we see, but not unfolding rapidly enough to avoid some quite scary outcomes. And when we look at the last decade or two, you know, several of the main reasons why we have such impressive renewable prices is because of the spending that was put into the Recovery Act in the Obama administration, because of spending that was undertaken in Germany in the previous decade, and R&D spending that's been undertaken in, in China over the last decade in particular. It's not a mystery. It's like you put money into this stuff, technological progress follows, and the prices fall, which makes it a much more attractive proposition for consumers especially, and governments planning their own future. So for me, it's sort of all a no-brainer if you're planning this at a whiteboard. The problem is, you know, we don't live on whiteboards. Um, and, um, you know, even the sort of short-term turbulence that comes with transitions can be quite politically uncomfortable, especially when governments are operating on two or four-year time horizons, as they often are. This has been a wonderful overview of the situation we're facing. Just to sort of round off the conversation, I want to think a little bit about how to communicate this and how it often is communicated. I'm struck by the fact that you are one of the most well-known journalists about this, one of the most influential voices about this. But the impression I got from talking to you, you know, for 50 minutes is quite different from what a lot of the consensus about climate change sounds like in the newspapers. There's no distance, I don't think, between the consensus in scientific literature and the way you're talking about this. But there is, I think, a real disjunction between what this sounds like if you read New York Magazine, the place which you write, or The Guardian, or The New York Times, and the subtlety in this conversation. And, you know, often the public conversation, it does sound like, you know, the world is going to end in 10 or 15 years, and we're on the way towards complete doom. And we basically have to radically change everything in order to deal with climate change, that we have to abolish capitalism, that we have to be much poorer, that we have to make very significant sacrifices at the individual and the collective level. And all of that sounds sort of significantly different from how you've been outlining the situation for the last 15 minutes. So what do you think about the prominence and the usefulness of this sort of catastrophist frame? And what explains its prominence in the discourse? Well, in general, putting aside climate for a brief minute, on any political issue, you have a wide spectrum of perspectives. And the value of an extreme perspective is not necessarily its applicability or its wisdom or lack of wisdom as it applies to somebody who's more in the middle of the spectrum. There are a lot of different kinds of political rhetoric that are useful and powerful and can be complementary, even if they are somewhat divergent. The UN's IPCC climate change body, in looking at their landmark 1.5 degree report of 2018, they were looking at the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. And they described that gulf as enormous as it applies to human flourishing and human suffering. Two degrees of warming has long been called a 
catastrophic level of warming. Now, you use the word catastrophist framing. The science tells us that we will be living in a very, very different world, which will be much harder for us, putting aside all the other things that we've talked about at two degrees, then at 1.5 degrees, then at one degree, then at 0.5 degrees. And this UN body, which is not by its nature an alarmist organ, they are, I think, by most metrics compared to the, the science that they're processing, pretty conservative actually, said that in order to avoid two degrees of warming, we needed a World War II scale mobilization towards renewable energy starting in 2019. This is not Greta Thunberg talking, and it's not Extinction Rebellion or Sunrise talking. This is the world scientists convened by the United Nations. Now, those people may have their own alarmist inclinations, but in general, I think it is a sober, and as I said a minute ago, relatively conservative digest of the scientific literature as it exists. I don't think that that framing is wrong. I think that it's right. It may just be also partial in that it overlooks some of the other lines of development that we've been talking about, you know, adaptation, resilience, modification, and all the rest of it. But if we hope to avoid two degrees of warming, we have to do much, 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 much more than is being done today. It's one reason why I don't think that's very likely. And if you set your standard of success as staying below two degrees of warming, then we are already today very much on the brink of failure. And that is really important to keep in mind. When I talk about how some of the worst case scenarios are now looking less likely, that's important to keep in mind too. But it doesn't mean that the likely future is what would have seemed to a climate scientist 20 or 30 years ago an acceptable outcome. It is still beyond the pale of that worldview. And I think we will find ways to live and indeed to some degree flourish there, but it's going to be a much more challenging path ahead. Now, the question of rhetorical approach, what's valuable, what's useful. I think one reason why we have bent our curve of expectation, if not yet our curve of emission, is that more and more people are more and more worried about the medium-term future when it comes to climate. I do think that the climate protests and the language of activists and indeed alarmists over the past few years have been one of the driving factors in making, say, every global leader get up on stage in Glasgow and say, this is an existential emergency. We need to get to zero by 2050 or 2060. Those were not promises that anyone was contemplating making in Paris just five years before. And I think part of that is because we have a newly aggressive, newly visible vanguard flank of the climate movement. For 30, 40 years, they were climate activists and nobody listened. And for five years, we've had Greta and XR and Sunrise and the Climate Strikers and the global rhetoric around climate change has really changed as a result. It's why every CEO of every Fortune 500 company is talking about climate responsibility, even if they're not yet moving quickly enough on it. So I think it's played a very important and useful role and has literally changed the likely future of the planet as a result, because many more people are taking this much more seriously than they were five or six years ago. That's a separate question from what kind of rhetoric we need now given the changing landscape and the changing dynamic. And personally, as someone who has been an avowed alarmist in the past, I think that we are in a somewhat different place with different rhetorical needs now than we were, say, five or six years ago, in part because, at least at the rhetorical level, there has been this great awakening. And even though many leaders 
all sectors are falling short of what the science says is necessary to avoid what we've long understood as really dramatic warming, possibly catastrophic warming. It is still the case, and, and importantly the case, that we are talking about it. There are almost no climate deniers, Jair Bolsonaro aside, in any position of power anywhere in the world. That is a really major shift. And countries are making their energy plans on decadal timescales now. They are focused on getting to zero. I think they're not yet focused enough when they're making them on like the five or 10 year timeline, but nevertheless, there's been a real shift there. And as a result, I think that the rhetorical need is less for waking people up and more for you know sorting out what this future will look like and how to maximize human flourishing in the context of significant and certainly dangerous and possibly catastrophic warming. I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen some of these extremist groups and figures lose some of their prominence over the last year or two. So, you know, Greta is still a major figure. The climate strikers are still doing their thing, but XR is a shell of its former self. Sunrise in the U.S. is much less influential than it was in 2018 and 2019. And I think that reflects a kind of collective strategic wisdom, which is the chief job here now is less about making people understand that the world is changing in dramatic ways, which will threaten their livelihoods and the livelihood of their children if we don't take action, and more about making sure the transition that is underway moves faster and with as little disruption as we possibly can. And as a result, I think we're in a sort of yeah different rhetorical place than we were a few years ago. But I would challenge what you presented as the sort of premise of your question, which is, and maybe there's a difference between us and our rhetorical or intellectual position on this set of issues, but when I read the New York Times, I don't see alarmism. And there's some of it that we publish that I've published under my name, of course. The Guardian does a bit more of it. When I read those, I don't think that journalism is misleading or irresponsible in the same way that I might describe some statements by Extinction Rebellion or whatever as, as misleading or irresponsible. I think that the world scientists have said pretty unequivocally that we've already lost the opportunity to avoid serious and significant damages from climate change. We are in a place now where we're strategizing about how to minimize those losses and impacts rather than avoid them. And that doing so requires a much faster transition than most of our polities and much of our politics has ever really tolerated in the past. So I thought we're nearly ending on a point of agreement, but let's go into the disagreement if you like. Look, I think, you know, the New York Times and New York Magazine are complicated places with a lot of different articles. Part of the problem is that the most alarmist pieces or headlines travel the most in social media. So nine out of 10 articles can be perfectly reasonable and accurate. And the one out of the 10 that's a little bit misleading, maybe the one that actually gets the most eyeballs and people may be more, most aware of. But just to give two examples, right? One is, I remember a study showing a very worrying finding that by 2100, a significant percentage of the territory of New York City may come to be significantly affected by floods or maybe underwater. But as I recorded, it was about 7% of the territory of New York City, and it was mostly the least inhabited parts of New York City and, and Red Hook and, and, and other parts of the city. Now, that's terrible, something to be very worried about. Uh, but by the time that this became a magazine cover, it had a photoshopped or however you want to call it, photograph of Manhattan with the Empire State Building, you know, 10 floors underwater. Now, that is just not what the study showed at all, right? It suggests a completely different future from what the science that's underlying suggested. And the other example, I know that the reality has changed over the last years, is that, you know, if people listen to this conversation with you, they will come away with a very different impression of what's going on in the world 
than they will if they only know the title of your book, which is The Uninhabitable Earth. Now, we all want to find titles of books that are nice and punchy, and I don't mean to make this person completely understand, that that perhaps also is just a symbol of how easy it is to have a disjuncture between the subtle, deeply informed thoughts of journalists working in this field and the sort of public impression that their work may give because of the nature of how media works, book sales work, social media works, and so on. I think it's a complicated set of issues to navigate on the particular question of the title of my book. I mean, you know, I think of this as being in the tradition of Silent Spring and the End of Nature, neither of which were meant to be taken literally. I think titles are often hyperbolic and smart readers understand that. But it is the case that given unmitigated warming, we're talking about large parts of the world that will look a lot more like the Sahel than they will look like whatever Austria. And that is a really meaningful change, which I think we should all be worried about. The thing that I would say as a rhetorical point, separate from the factual point, is all of us live our lives anchored in the present day. And our expectations for the future are built from those impressions, which means that it is easy to look past some warnings of change and treat them as considerably more marginal than they really are, because we are so used to the life that we live in the world that we live in. And it may be the case that at two or two and a half degrees, even with all of the impacts that we know will happen coming to pass, there will still be people in parts of the world who look around and say, like, what were these scientists warning us about? Everything's fine. But that will be because we have normalized, you know, a tripling of California wildfires or some dramatic rise in the level of days with lethal heat across India or pick your climate impact. And our ability to normalize that suffering, I think, is not really an argument against taking seriously the threat of it evolving. And I think here you mentioned briefly earlier the, the experience in the pandemic. And I think that that's illustrative in the sense that Speaking of journalistic choices, I mean, the New York Times published a huge banner headline across its front page when 100,000 Americans had died of COVID. It listed the names of the dead. It was a major journalistic choice and event that they got behind. We're now at basically 10 times that level. And we have begun to, in much of the country, and maybe even most notably in places where the New York Times is read, started to treat that as more like background noise. Now, I don't want to say that the first choice was purely moral and virtuous and correct. And the set of choices that we're making now is totally immoral and a force of denial and, you know, a measure of our inhumanity to one another. But it shows you just how differently we relate to different sorts of threats and how much we can choose to emphasize or de-emphasize things that we know will cause human suffering. It's a large planet. You know, there are a lot of people on it. 100 years from now, that'll still be the case. But that doesn't mean that the climate suffering of the people who will be impacted is irrelevant. And I think we should you know, try to be as focused on what we can do to alleviate that suffering as we possibly can. And I think for a long time, that meant really trying to raise alarm about climate change and global warming. I still think the world is not alarmed enough. I think that in general, we are far too complacent and far too trusting that our institutions will endure that the promises that we were handed, you and I growing up at the end of the 20th century in parts of the wealthy West, those promises, they're not gone, but they've been called into question, not just by climate change, but by other forces. And that's bad. <laughs> and um, we shouldn't be afraid to say that's bad just because it may not mean the true end of the world. There's a sort of famous 
quip about climate science, the two unlikeliest outcomes are the world's going to end or it'll all be fine. We are in the middle, in the muck, in the shit of it. And if what it takes is being really focused on future suffering to turn the dial a little bit down from two and a half degrees to 2.2 degrees, I certainly think the science justifies it, but I also think it's rhetorically useful to do that, to shake us out of our intuitive complacency and make us understand how much of what we take for granted or have taken for granted in the recent past is at least uncertain and maybe worse than that going forward. David Wallace-Wells, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.